coming up in this episode of Finding Common Ground. And it was going to be a sweet job. I mean, there was going to be a lot of money in it. But I knew that if I took that job, I would never see my kids again. So once you realize you were poor, then my strategy was, how do I become not poor? You know, when I see somebody do that and I make that offer, then they don't show up. I consider them cowards. Who said we had to grow up and when did we grow up? There are two sides to every coin. How do we deal with racial issues when they affect relationships? Finding common ground on all those issues that we come against. There's black and there's white. And I think as Christians, we have to learn how to get together because we're not in heaven. I've met more interesting people just by God just bringing them in. Republicans and Democrats. But a lot of times when it comes to race and it comes to culture and it comes to perception, Even as Christians, we don't always understand. We look at it through our lenses. There's Bill. I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland called Parma. Uh, Any black people in Parma? There was not one. Not one black person, Bill? Not one. Come on, Bill, you got to have one, a token black person, a token. And there's Odell. I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, public housing, single mom, divorced single mom with four kids. And I came up through segregation and all that kind of stuff. If a black person drove through the town, the police would stop and escort them out. Bill and Odell are finding common ground. A part of what we have to do is listen to each other, find the common ground, and question, not questioning you like you're on a witness stand, but questioning you for a better understanding. Father God, we just want to say thank you for all your grace and mercy. Just thanking you, God, for just being here. We thank you for the courage and wherewithal to continue to seek common ground, God. God, it appears that sometimes the footprints of common grounds being washed away by the wind, the rain, the storms in life, but we still believe that is there, God. So continue to give us the wherewithal to find common ground. In Jesus' name we pray and believe, amen. Amen. Terribly, Father, just uh, thank you for uh, allowing us to have common ground. You taught us about common ground, about uh, loving on each other, loving each other, understanding each other, and putting on a set of lenses to see the other person as a person that you created. Lord, we know that uh, you love everyone. You give everyone a second chance, a third chance. And uh, that uh, your your whole world is about love. Amen. Amen. Bill, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. You know, weekend. Yeah, yeah. You know, the good looking black man. Um, last time I talked to you, I think I was approaching 50. I'm close to 55 pounds down now. So nothing to brag about. But it's just, I think I haven't mentioned it for a while. So, man, one big problem, though, you know, you got the clothes and you know, things are looking big on you and nothing worse than two things. You don't want to be overweight and look like the clothes are too little for you. Now you don't want to lose a bunch of weight and look like the clothes are too sloppy, make you look sloppy. So you caught between that, that place, Bill, that place. But, you know, I had a opportunity today. I did a commercial, one of my first commercials for pay ever. Our good friend, Marty Cotis, um, put out a call a while back and says, Hey, we're looking for some people to, um, being our advertiser, I'm advertising my restaurants and everything. So I just responded back, you know, and message, hey, Marty, listen, you don't have to pay me. I'll be glad to do it. 
And I didn't think that much more of it. Then I get a call, excuse me, a text about two weeks ago saying, hey, if you're still interested, we're looking for a good looking black man in a business suit <laughs> that looks like, you know, come over to Daryl's and we'll pay you a little money and give you a free meal and all the drinks you could have. And, you know, I'm not a big drinker. So I went over there today and did something that I probably would never have allowed myself to do years ago as relates to uh, being a commercial uh, sitting there with some strangers uh, acting like, you know, we are having a good time from a business perspective. So I, it was fun. It was fun. And it was fun to kind of let your hair down a little bit, not too much, but let your hair down and just, just laugh, laugh, laugh. That makes sense. Did they have a script for you? Nah, no script, no script, no script. So wow. you know, that's what I knew it was good when it's no script. And, you know, we have the TV show tonight coming in uh, swing state that's starting to pick up some steam. So that um, common ground, you know, of course the podcast is how many countries again, Bill now? 35, 35 countries. Wow. And I saw one of your posts today, man. I mean, you know, you made a post today and you got Facebook lit up. What's going yeah, on? Like the Christmas yeah, I, I posted, I haven't posted about our podcast in a little while, just cause I've been so, so busy and I'm starting to dig out, you know, um, it's a hard uh, balance between all the responsibilities you and I have and then uh, trying to get some downtime so you can recharge. And uh, I finally got to the point that I was going, okay, I'm comfortable. I can recharge, almost recharged now. And uh, so I posted one about the uh, bisexual Baptist, black Baptist pastor. And I, my comment was uh, God is about love. And uh we got some, we got some negative comments and then a bunch of the people on Facebook, I guess that follow us, uh, came in to our defense, which is kind of cool. What was our negative comments, Bill? Uh, that, uh, if we think, uh, God is about love and he can accept bisexual people, it's satanic. Okay. And so, uh, so common ground, which we believe in common ground, everyone who knows what we're about knows that, Hey, Here's two guys who look at their challenges and then they purposely go out to find other individuals that may or may not be a Christian, may or may not be black, may or may not be white, may or may not be straight, may or may, all that kind of good stuff. And we purposely try to find individuals that we disagree with. However, in our disagreement, we can find common ground. That's what we do. So I guess when we posted about the young man who was on the show and I heard some great things about it. People are like, wait a minute, how can you all be a show and talk about a black, bisexual, Christian pastor? Because if, if you all saying that, you all must be satanic. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. You That's know, I, I got a lot of comments, too. Um, people asked me to requote my quote. I guess it came through a little garbled. And it was, um, don't set your feet in the ground so hard that God can't move you. Wow. Wow. And, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, people have their viewpoints and I get it and they, they justify them a number of ways, uh, the Bible being one, but other things, social norms. Uh, but, um, I think that, uh, if you look at, um, how God, uh, allowed Jesus to come in and he broke every social norm. He had women in his ministry. He had, uh, people that were not considered uh, a tax collector which was considered a pretty bad guy at the time. So, um, 
not that we're, we're trying to be that way. I think we're just trying to be ourselves and talk about, talk to people. You know, the reason we got uh, the fella on uh, for uh, the podcast is uh, that, you know, we were not brainstorming, trying to figure out what could we do? Uh, who could we have? And uh, I, I just kiddingly said, why don't we get a black pastor that's bisexual? And Odell goes, I know one. And uh, so, so we had him on the show and he was terrific. So I think our next guest should be a uh, black female pastor that's bisexual. You know what, Bill? Let's do this. <laughs> I know a lot of people. I think possibly our next guest too, or one of our guests down the road might be the gentleman, I won't call his name out, um, who had the critical comments not to come in and argue his points about how he feels about people who are different from him, just to come in and let's have a conversation about him and his thoughts on the world, on society and everything, and see if we can find some common ground with him. Because I know the gentleman, I've, I've uh, over the years, I post something and he came back very, very strong on what I said. So I, being me, um, called him up or sent him a message via Facebook and said, hey, you know what? Instead of you disagreeing with me because I didn't even know who he was and trying to make a big deal out of it on Facebook, let's just meet at Panera Bread on Lawndale Drive. Everybody know Panera Bread on Lawndale Drive is Odell's official, official, unofficial corporate headquarters. So Panera Bread on Lawndale Drive. And let's just have a cup of coffee and talk about our differences. And he agreed. He accepted it. And we went and him and I sat down for about two hours one morning and just sat and talked and talked and sat. And when it was all said and done, Bill, we had more in common that we, than we had apart. Now, I don't, I don't say that for everybody because everybody don't have the wherewithal to go and meet with someone who disagrees with them and who have disagreed with them publicly. But at the same time, I know you have it because I know you've had many people who disagree with you on things and you pick them up and say, hey, you'll call them up and say, hey, let's, let's, let's go and have a cup of coffee. Let's have lunch because I know you do that all the time. Oh, why yeah. do you do that, Bill? Oh, yeah. why, why do you do that? Well, people, I want to get to understand. That. I want to get to understand the person uh, and have them understand me a little bit. Uh, it's so easy to make comments on social media. Okay, it just it blows it out there. But when you get face to face with the person and you start understanding them, it changes the relationship. It goes from making those comments to okay, I, I see where you're coming from. You know, I made a comment. Uh, I was a uh, yeah, I went to A&T University during an election and uh, and I was a poll observer and I was a Republican poll observer and there was a Democrat poll observer there. Uh, both of us were white and we're at A&T and just sitting there just relaxing. And him and I talked, went outside and talked and had our picture taken by that statue of the four gentlemen that went to the uh, museum, uh, went to the uh, Woolworth. And, uh, and I made a comment. Uh, I was I was a poll observer at A and T, which is an all black university. No, I shouldn't say all black, but it's historically black university. And uh, I said, you know, I, I had a great time uh, just observing and learning the process. Uh, I turned in uh, a, my ballot there because I was going to be out of town, uh, and I got to see the process how they put those in. Um, and uh, I made a comment that. I had a great time and I even made a, made a friend that's a Democrat and man, that blew up on uh, Greensboro politics. 
first off, people accused me of being a white person watching black people vote and making it intimidating. So I pointed out that that wow. my friend, I, I pointed out that the fellow that was a Democrat was also white. So how does that work? And then somebody else made a comment and they, they just started making all these negative comments about uh, me being there. And uh, so there was one individual that was pretty harsh. And uh, I asked him, I said, Hey, let's get together for coffee. We'll go to Odell's uh, headquarters at Panera bread and uh, have a cup of coffee. And he says, no, I'll only go to dinner and you pay. And I said, absolutely. I'll do that. Where would you like to go? And he says, Fleming steakhouse. And I said, okay, I'll do that. Let's go. And he never responded ever. And uh, so, you know, when I see somebody do that and I make that offer and then they make that, you know, we're going to go have a big steak dinner on your nickel. And then they, then they don't show up. Um, I consider them cowards. Mm. I consider them cowards because um, there is nothing wrong with a conversation. Okay. There is nothing wrong with having a conversation and uh, over a cup of coffee, like you said, and, uh, or even a steak dinner. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't have let him buy dessert. I, I wasn't going to give him dessert, <laughs> only steak dinner. <laughs> but, you know, I guess, you know, the social media has changed everything for people from the standpoint of how they can communicate. You know, I, my brother-in-law is one of these uh, folks that uh, does believes in all these theories and uh, five people control the world and all this crazy stuff. Like he, I was, I was on his, on his Facebook post and he says, you've got to listen to this. This is absolutely true. And it, it said that nine 11 was fake and the buildings didn't come down because of the airplanes that a special ops group uh, went in and detonated that building to make it fall the way it did. And that uh, unfortunately this person that was a special ops person, they named a name had only confessed on his deathbed and he's now dead. And I'm like, okay, this is, this is getting a little way out there. Um, you know, the, so it's, it's interesting. You know, people have different viewpoints. They see things differently. And, um, and, you know, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that they have a different viewpoint. They're coming from a different place, but on the other hand, you got to put some common sense to this stuff. Okay. The, uh, like, for example, do you believe Bigfoot's still around? Some people do. Some people absolutely do. Um, and uh, even though they haven't seen one, but they, they believe all the theories that have gone on. Hey, I'll tell you what I want to talk about today. Yes. 132 years. No, 134 years. How do you get 134, sir? Uh, your age and my age. Hey, I'm 62. I'm 72. So 62 and 72 dot, dot, dot is 134. Yeah. And so what I'd like to do is talk about maybe break it out. And uh, it was your suggestion that we break it out into maybe when we were kids, you know, what's the most significant thing in your life outside of your family? Can't put your family in there. Uh, you know, Bev and your immediate family, you can talk about your, 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 uh, your family from your mom's standpoint, maybe. Uh-huh. Uh, but let's talk, let's do it when, um, let's talk about when we were adolescents, we were young kids, and then we we're maybe teenagers uh-huh. and then, uh, middle age and then now. Okay. okay. Well, that, that's, that's an easy one. You know, when I was young, Bill, I spent a lot of my time, once I realized I was poor, um, and let me explain, 
a lot of times when you are poor, poverty, you don't know because there's no one, it's not a sign that someone says you're poor. But once you figure it out, once you kind of look around and the TV shows, um, Leave it to Beaver, uh, Andy Griffin show. Um, and when I came up, we had three stations. I think it was probably CB, ABC, NBC, and probably CBS, something like that. No color, um, right? No color. No, nah, no color, black and white, and no remote control either. And you know, <laughs> you we were had, the remote control. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we had rabbit ears, meaning that once the antenna broke, you had to take a clothes hanger or something like that. And yeah, 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 I remember that. Go from tin there. foil, put tin foil on it. Exactly, definitely. So once you realize you were poor, then my strategy was how do I become not poor? You know, that I spent a lot of time, and as a kid, I'm sure you shouldn't worry about that. But I spent a lot of time on how do I do this? How do I get out of this thing called poem poverty? So that's why I spent a lot of time. I often tell myself, because I talk to myself, and believe it or not, sometimes, Bill, I answer myself. And I know that's not good, but that's <laughs> the way it is. So it's almost like early in life, I worked very hard to collect money. That was a big deal. I, I, I wanted to get money because money means something in America, especially when you're poor. Then later on in life, I collected things, meaning that, okay, I, I never had a good car, so I wanted a car. I wanted nice clothes. I wanted a nice house. I collected things. And in this stage of my life, and I know we're going a little out of turn, I'll get back, I'm collecting memories because I'm very much aware now that at 62, I probably already lived half of my life. And now the things that will be here after I'm dead and gone and seeing Jesus is memory. So I'm collecting memories. I want my grandson to have good memories of me. I want my granddaughter to have good memories of me. I'm sure I outlive, I mean, my wife will outlive me. I want her to have good memories. I want people, you and others to say, you know what? That Odell was a good dude, you know, not perfect. He got on our nerves, but he was a good guy. So we had good memories, whether it's in Paris, whether it's in London, just good memories. So that's kind of where I'm at. But my, to answer your original question, uh, as a child, I spent a lot of time thinking on how I was going to get out of this thing called poverty. And it wasn't through basketball. I was very good at basketball. But I, my strategy was to meet people because I was always good with people. You know, I like people, meet people and just be smart, not smart in a way of trying to be slick and trying to get over being smart in judging people, meeting people. And for some reason, Bill, and I don't know where I got it from, business. Business was always in my mind, my way out that I could get into business and eventually be an entrepreneur when I figured out what an entrepreneur was. Because a lot of these things you don't know, you know, you learn along the way. It's like picking up sticks. You learn along the way and said, one day I want to work for myself. Those are the type of things, but I always wanted to be in business because I think that you can negotiate between people and get a lot done. So that was my way out. And thank God with God's grace and mercy has worked. And I'm not poor anymore, Bill. I'm not poor anymore. And my family's not poor. My children, my grandchildren, we're not poor. And we were able to break poverty in one generation. And a lot of times it takes multi-generations to break poverty. Yeah, I agree. You know, you, you've received a lot of awards for different things you've done. Yes. Uh, tell me about how you feel about getting awards. Uh, it's according to where I receive them from now. A lot of times... When I was younger, awards meant a lot. It was a sense of recognition. I wanted to be recognized as someone, uh, whether it was a basketball trophy or whether it was um, 
all-star team being selected, you feel real good about that stuff, especially when you start making the local newspaper at home. You're in the newspaper, not for killing nobody or stealing. You're in the newspaper for accomplishment. And then you go off to college and your college does well. And you're in the local newspaper for that. And then later on in business or going to the White House or going here, it feels good to get those awards as long as you're getting them for the right reason. It's not manipulation or anything like that. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So the uh, my, my first, adult, you know, when I was growing up as a kid, maybe till 12 or 13, you know, I was in kids world. Uh, by the, that, I mean, my life evolved around uh, swimming because we had a swimming pool across the street. And uh, the most significant days when we were growing up were two days that I remember. One is when my dad was able to get $100 to get a family pass for that city swimming pool. And we, wow. would, we would spend all summer over there. It was tough at the beginning of the summer to go there and swim because the water was cold. <laughs> it was really cold. And we took swim lessons and all that stuff to keep ourselves occupied. And then later on, it you know, water warmed up. It was beautiful. The uh, and it was sitting on a hill, right? And you can see our house from the hill. Mm. And uh, we would be up there so much that the way we would know to come home for dinner, my mom would put the American flag up on the house, and you could see that, and that that meant come home for dinner. As we, and uh, so you know, I've the oldest of eight. We'd had a lot of brothers and sisters at the pool, and so whoever saw the flag would grab everybody else. Hey, the flag's up. We got to go home for dinner. And right. we'd, we'd walk down the hill and have our dinner and. Sometimes we go back and swim, but usually that was the end of the night. We just played uh, in the backyard, kick the can or uh, Red Rover, Red Rover, let somebody come over or something yeah, like that, yeah, yeah, play yeah. that game. And uh, and then we had an ice cream right across the street. Our street was really busy. It was a main street. So we learned how to cross the street with a lot of cars and we'd run over and get our ice cream. And that was a big deal. Sit on our front porch and just hang out. Uh, catch, catch fireflies and do all yep. that. Yep. It's interesting. You thought I talked about swimming. We learned how to swim also, but I learned how to swim in what we call a creek. C-R-E-E-K. In Charleston, South Carolina, as you know, a lot of water below sea level and all this kind of good stuff. Well, you have a lot of main water, bodies of water, but also you have all these little creeks in the marshes. Everybody know that. So that's how we learn. I remember as a child, asking some of the older boys, I want to teach them how to swim, teach them how to swim, teach them how to swim. They said, no problem with that, good. And we went down through the graveyard. Through the graveyard, or some people call it cemetery, through the graveyard, it was a, a wharf, an old rickety wharf that somebody must have built back there a long time ago. And across from it, it was a body of water. Not a big body, but just, you know, boats could come through there. And on the other side of the body of water is a little island. They call it Ghost Island right there by Charlestown Landing and obviously Ghost Island because uh, at one time during the Civil War, Revolutionary War, some people got killed over there and remains, all this good stuff. But back to the story. So we get on the wharf and all of a sudden, Bill, I see myself flying through the air and it's like slow motion. And I hit the water and my eyes are open and all I can see is green. You know, if anybody's ever been in brackish type water, salt water is green and everything. And I'm just you know, just scared and you fighting water and I could feel hands grabbing me and pulling me back up. Well, the big boys had already determined that Odell will learn how to swim. So we're just going to throw him in the water and let him feel like he's <laughs> drowning. Oh and my then gosh. when I got, when I finally got on the pier crying and like looking at them, they're like, well, you said you want to learn how to swim. 
So that's the first lesson. Throw you in the water. So that's how I learned, Bill. So it wasn't no goldfish, the uh, goldfish swim school yeah. or the, the swimming pool or none of that. It was no American flag. It was they picked my behind up. And I remember going through the air, slow motion, hitting that water and fighting that water. And it's no feeling that I've ever experienced like fighting water when you can't swim and you think you're going to drown. Just the fear and the whole thing. Yeah, it's, so a, it's that's, weird. That's kind of how we grew up. Well, I almost drowned once, too. I think I might have been five or six. We were at a lake, Candlewood Lake, I think it was called. And I was on this pier, and there was a diving board on it, and there's maybe a slide. And a lifeguard goes, you know, you can only be on this pier if you know how to swim. And I said, well, I know how to swim. I didn't know how to swim. Right. So he goes, he says, jump in. So I jumped in, and I went right to the bottom. (laughs) I mean, I went straight down like a rock. And I'm trying to figure out what the heck is going on. Next thing I know, I feel a big hand reach down and grab me and pull me out. It was my dad. Wow. My dad saw what was going on and ran down. My dad was a lifeguard, ran down and pulled me out. And, uh, you know, I was spitting water and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He told me to get go by my mom and I wasn't crying. And uh, but I remember as I was walking away, him really chewing out the lifeguard saying, what in the world were you doing as a little kid? You know, he didn't know how to swim. And, uh, but that my dad saved my life on that. I remember that big old hand coming down, you know, uh, we have these memories growing up that, you know, quite frankly, we forget until somebody has a conversation like this, that come up. I probably haven't told that story in years. Uh, so, you know, I, when I, when I was growing up, we, you know, we would, we had a field, we had a, uh, woods behind us and we go play back there all day and, uh, play in the backyard. My dad, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. So, you know what, in the summertime, uh, he, he gave us a playground. You know what it was? No, he, he was, he had a dump truck and he would go get a whole dump truck of sand and dump it in the backyard. And we would play in that sand, making forts and doing all kinds of stuff. And by the end of the summer, that, that's, that sand was gone. About 90% of it was probably in our house, Right, right. <laughs> but we just, that's what we did. And then one, t- as we got older, he bought us all hammers and he brought a big bucket of nails and he dumped a bunch of old wood. Mm. He said, go build yourself a treehouse or a fort. And uh, so we didn't know what we were doing. We started figuring it out and we built a treehouse. And one of the neighbor kids came over and older, he must've been 16. And uh, he came over and he built us a treehouse about 20 feet up. Wow. And uh, it was, it was, it was three trees and he nailed a two by sixes around them, build a platform. And then we started building the sides and the doors. You build a ladder. And then once we got the first floor done, we said, Oh shoot, why don't we build a second floor? So we built a second floor on this thing. And uh, we played in that forever. That was a great, great growing up. Well, Bill, but what happens because we did tree houses, not quite like that elaborate, and we did the uh, little go-karts, you know, go-karts with no more than take some wood and some old wheels yep. we got from, yep. a, uh, from a wagon or something like that and nail it together. And, you know, the, how you turn with your feet and all this kind of stuff. But what happened to one's imagination? Because whether it's a dump truck full of sand that dumps on the backyard or a tree house or whatever, what we had was imagination. And when you take one's imagination away from them, then it might become problematic. Now, as adults, we take that same imagination and we call it a vision. 
Now I have a vision on what my company could be. I have a vision on how I could get out of poverty. You know, I had to envision myself as being a successful businessman just to even understand what I could and couldn't do. So what happened to one's, what happens to one's imagination builds, one vision? Who said we had to grow up and when did we grow up? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I, I grew up with hardly any money and I always worried about money as a little kid. I remember waking up in the middle of the night and going downstairs to my parents and saying, and they said, what are you doing down here? I said, nah, I'm worried we don't have enough money to pay the bills. And, uh, and the way I got money was through my individual labor, right. working in a grocery store, delivering newspapers, cutting grass. And it never occurred to me how to multiply that. I just felt, okay, I'm, I'm a man of one. I just got to move up the, the ladder and I'll make more money each time I move up that rung the ladder. And that, that took me through, quite frankly, uh, quite a bit of my life. You know, I worked for corporations because I got a paycheck um, and a bigger paycheck by doing it. And uh, my uncle Bob started a bus company or a limousine company. And I used to help him with that every now and then I drove. And uh, I remember I was working for a corporation and my uncle Bob grabbed me and he says, Hey, Billy, uh, I'm going to start this limousine service. And uh, he was a Cleveland cop and he had nine kids and there was never any money in it. And he said, I'm going to get the rights to deliver lost bags from the airlines because we worked out of Cleveland Hopkins airport. And he says, I want you to run that for me. I want you to manage that. And I told him, I said, uncle Bob, I got a full-time job. I'm making good money. I got benefits. I said, you know, I, I don't know if I'm going to work for you, if I'm going to make enough money to pay my bills. So I turned it down. He, he went on to, uh, with his kids to probably put together a hundred million dollar bus company. Wow. wow. And, uh, and they sold it to coach USA and they all walked away with tons of money. And, uh, so, you know, you reflect on, boy, what would have happened if I'd have taken that would, would my life change? You know, another time that something happened to me, um, you know, I was, I was get going, I gotten divorced and I was in a custody fight with my ex and uh, was working for a major multinational corporation. And they came to me and they said, uh, we want to offer you a job as marketing director in Bangkok, Thailand, in Thailand. Mm. And I was in the United States. And I said, uh, uh, and it was going to be a sweet job. I mean, there was going to be a lot of money in it and uh, a lot of benefits. But I knew that if I took that job, I would never see my kids again. And I was in the middle of trying to get them and get custody. So um, I turned it down. And uh, when you turn your turn down something like that in a major corporation, your name goes in a different bucket. Yeah. They, not they, a good bucket either. No, it's not a good bucket. So I kind of said, well, maybe it's time for me to start looking around for another company. And that's how I ended up in North Carolina. Wow. Um, so that was, that was in corporate America. You know, corporate America, you go to work at eight, you're done at five. Whether you have, you know, I used to run a, the Vaseline skincare business and it's a couple hundred million dollars. I was in my thirties and I could do that in 20 hours uh -huh. and uh, the way it was set up. And, uh, but back then you couldn't work from home. You couldn't say, Hey, I'm done. I'm, I'm tapping out. I'm going to go do something at home. Uh, you had to stay there uh, for those times. And, and many times corporations expect you to stay late. Right. Okay. Right. 
that means you're committed. And, uh, uh, and you know, it, that was a whole different era than it is today. Now, you know, my daughter works from home with a laptop and, uh, she can, she works the hours she wants. And, uh, that's good. That's a good thing. I think that's great. I think one of the things that came out of COVID is that, uh, uh we found that people can work remotely and be successful. Well, you know, let me ask you a question. Um, you said something that is very interesting to me. Marketing, we're talking about imagination. We're talking about vision. Is marketing real? Or is marketing a lie? Or is marketing what we want marketing to be? Because when you put the pretty half-naked woman laying on the hood of a car to market a wrench, or you put the nice family with the white picket fence to market detergent, clothesline. I know a lot of people may not even know what a clothesline is anymore. Or if we say Apple and you are saying, here's this computer. And if I have an Apple computer, I'm, I'm, I'm an elite or a phone. A lot of times marketing is dealing with prestige. Is one of the commercials on TV, I won't name the one, an old guy, no, excuse me, a guy comes in with an old phone and it's almost like he said, hey, uh, Lily, can I trade this in? He says, yes. And he pulls the phone out and everybody's like, oh my God, you know, you, you, you know, why would you do that? And she's like, don't worry about it. I'm trained for it. She opened this box and stick the phone in there like it's, a, like it's some dirty object to say an old cell phone is not good. You need the latest and the greatest. And People ask me all the time, Odell, you, why do you have an Android? I'm like, well, I'm, I could still use a BlackBerry if I could or a flip phone. <laughs> was advertising manipulation bill or information? Well, it's a great question. You know, when I was a brand manager, um, w- w- the first thing you're taught is find your target audience. So let's take that wrench with the beautiful woman. Well, who uses wrenches mainly? Men, usually to fix cars. Yes. Yeah. And and they're usually earthy men, right? Okay, they're not they're not uh, PhDs, right? And so they are interested in probably beer, uh, big trucks, uh, scantily clothed women, okay. uh, you know. And I'm stereotyping here, but what you do in marketing, you know. And I'll, let me walk you through. Uh, you know, I invented and launched Vaseline lip therapy for a company, and the way it happened. And this will give you an idea of marketing. Uh, my boss came in to me and said, you know, the Vaseline petroleum jelly business is about an $80 million business. Uh, and I want you to increase it 10%. And I, I looked at the president who told me, I said, Gary, you know, everybody's got a jar in their house. If I load them up with two jars, that means they're just not going to buy again later on. They're going to have more inventory than they need. And, uh, so we sat down with our team and we said, hey, this is, this is our objective to increase this. And uh, one of our market research fellows said, you know, what we've got to do is find an alternative use for the petroleum jelly. Mm. So we went to- uh, not, not a new market, but an alternative use for it. Same yes. thing, but an additional need or additional use. Correct. Correct. And so we, we, we sat down and he said, well, let's go talk to our target audience and heavy users, okay? 
because they're the ones that are using it the most. And maybe they have an alternative they're using it for that we're not aware of. Right. Okay. So we, we decided we were going to go to a mall and do a mall intercept. And basically that is a market research company just sees women walking through the mall because we were targeting women um, and ask them to come in to this market research and basically dump their purse out and see what they had in it. And if they had something with petroleum jelly. So, you know where the heavy, heavy user was? No, where? Greensboro, North Carolina was one of them. And we flew down here to the old airport. And I went to the Four Seasons Mall. And there used to be a market research company there. And we did a mall intercept. And we found out women were carrying around little tubs of Vaseline. And so we asked them, what's that being used for? They said, oh, I put it on my lips. If I have a little cut, I use it. You know, those big jars I can't carry around. And I just want something little to carry. And But we found when they said they use it on their lips, we said, what for? And he said, it's a moisturizer, like a lip lip, lip uh, balm, uh, like chapstick. Oh, so so Bill, you so you tell me this thing right here yeah, that I it. have is Carmax. It says Carmax. I got, my son started using it. Little yellow, red tip. Yep. Yep. It wasn't always like this before because no. it used to be like a little uh, a little tube. It should be like this little tube. A long time you can put on your lips. Yep. So we sat around and we we did some uh, research and we found out that people wanted a convenient package to put on their lips. So we developed a product called a jelly roll. And basically it was like that tube you saw with Carmex, who was our competitor. That's another story. I talked to the owner of that, which is an interesting guy. Uh, and uh, we and they we took a look at that and we knew Chapstick was out there with their stick, but nobody yes, had yeah. anything with petroleum jelly in it. So uh, we came up with a thing called a jelly roll. Remember those roll-on deodorant balls? Yes. Well, that's what we did. We put a roll-on deodorant ball inside a tube. And we made a million tubes and we shipped them up to Canada because chapstick happens where it's cold and dry. Yeah. And it was winter in Canada. So we shipped up millions. We sold them all like hotcakes. Wow. And, but we didn't get a lot of repeat purchase. So you get trial, but no repeat. Mm-hmm. So we went up and interviewed the people up there and said, okay, what, what's going on? They said, well, we love it. Uh, but there's a couple operational problems, functional problems with that. So what is it? said, well, when you have chapped lips, they're sore. And to make the roll-on ball work uh, with a lubricant like petroleum jelly, you got to really press hard. Wow. And it hurts my lips. Mm. And the other reason is petroleum jelly is used as a Petri dish in a Petri dish to grow mold. And uh, it's a neutral agent. Well, what happened is the dead skin would collect around that roller ball and people put it in their pocket and get warm. And guess what would happen? Mold would grow on it. Wow. And they threw it out. So we went back to the drawing board, came back down here to the States, and we came up with, uh, which you just held up, a little tube with a little round ball at top on it with a little hole in it. You yep. it, and it comes out and it worked perfectly. Well, we had two options. One is the round top and the other one was slivered like a lipstick is. Yeah. And we did some research on that. And we said, uh, men like the round one it, more than the slivered sliced one because sliced one made men feel they're putting lipstick on. So we went for the unisex one. And uh, by the way, chapstick went for the slivered one and didn't help. Uh, But uh, so we did the round one and we put a bunch of them out there and we started showing how it works and did some advertising. And uh, it was, it was more of our advertising was functionality. 
how this thing worked, how it solved the problem. Okay. How it solved the problem. We didn't have pretty ladies on there. We didn't have any of that. You know, some people do that kind of advertising. I consider that very cheap advertising. What you have is you want to advertise a problem and you have the solution and then let that product sell itself. And so we put this product out there and it's sold pretty good, but it didn't, we had it, we placed it uh, right next to the petroleum jelly in the uh, first aid area and in the baby area. And uh, it, it really didn't take off until one of our food brokers came in and said, you know, you really got this product in the wrong spot. And I said, what are you talking about? He says, lip care is sold at the checkout. That's where everybody buys their lip care products is they're checking out. So like, look at chapstick. So we went and put that, uh, we went and talked to some people. We had never sold a product at checkout. We didn't understand it. It was a separate buyer. We didn't know how it worked. I mean, it's a separate, wait a minute, a separate buyer. It's the same. I go in the store, Walmart. I go get what I want to get, and I sit there, and 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 it used to bother me. The checkout has all this stuff there. It's like, wait a minute, this this is in the way. But you're like, no, it's a strategy around the checkout. Absolutely right. And uh, and there's a person that manages checkout products because everybody wants to put their product to checkout. Well, you you got to have a certain size. You got to have a certain price. It's a whole different buyer, and uh, so. We went and saw the buyer and he said, well, you know, I've got chapstick at every checkout. I said, I'll tell you what, why don't we do every other checkout? And uh, he said, well, we could probably do that. Um, and he said, but, you know, you've got, a, you've got this thing all set up in a one, one card with, a, uh, um, with one piece. He says, you've got to change how you merchandise it. I want a little box, like a dump bin that has 48 in them that people can just grab. So we designed a couple boxes and they said, this is the one we want. So uh, we, we did the merchandising that's called merchandising. And we did the merchandising like that. And we started bu- building these boxes and put them at every other checkout. Well, the opening order for a major retailer, just to put product at every other checkout with no backup inventory was 3 million bucks. Mm. So you get an idea. I was selling 80 million. I got one order for 3 million for one store. Wow. Stores. That was a big store. So as things went on, we started realizing that if we designed different merchandising items for different accounts, we'd get in their stores. And uh, sure enough, we started doing that. There used to be a, a place called Drug Emporium. It was a big drug store. And they sold things like they were the Costco of drug stores. Uh-huh. And they sold large amounts of product. So the fellow that ran it came in to see us and he says, I, I, I want, I don't want these boxes. I said, well, what do you want? He says, I want a plastic uh, tub that has three levels and will hold a thousand of these things. And I'll put it right at the front of the store. And he says, and I said, holy cow, that's a lot of inventory. So we did a test and they sold like hotcakes. Well, who like was it, Bill? Was it your, because the, the audience want to know, when you look at stuff like that, was it your company's inventory? Because we're thinking, I'm thinking, I didn't know any better. Anything in a store, the store must have purchased it first. Then when I, I flew out to Walmart in my early business years, Bentonville, Arkansas, by the way, at that time, 30 years ago, Bentonville had more cows in it than black people. Because I remember going out there, calling on Walmart, private jets, all that kind <laughs> I've of been stuff. To, I've been to Bentonville. So you know exactly what I'm talking oh, about. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. 
So then I found out that, hey, Walmart don't pay for anything until it is checked out by the client. So what they were telling me is this, hey, Odell, you are Joe Blow Company. We allow you to put your merchandise in our store, but you don't charge us for it until it goes through our system that someone purchased it. And I couldn't believe that because I always thought that, hey, you have to buy the merchandise, put it in your store, and the store was holding the bag for the merchandise, whether it's sold or not. Walmart's like, no, the manufacturer is going to hold the bag. And if it doesn't sell, then you come and get your stuff out of there. So Walmart's not paying for anything. Well, no, is that kind of no, how things work? No, well, maybe when I was, no, when I was there, it wasn't that way. They bought the product. Now, if it didn't sell, they, they would call you up and say, hey, you got to come and get this stuff or destroy it or donate it. Right. But they bought it. They bought the inventory. They own the inventory. Okay, okay. But here's the thing. When we were at checkout, the uh, we have all these allowances, these trade allowances. Uh, so if we want to run a coupon, we can give them certain money to run a coupon or do a special, put them on an end cap, all these different things. Well, the, the checkout buyer goes, we have a, um, you, know, you have to give us an allowance for, for people stealing your product. Because at checkout, there's a lot of, lot of stealing because people stick it in their pocket. Uh-huh. And, and I go, well, how much is that? And he says, it's 5%. We lose 5% of our product at checkout from stealing. And we expect you to cover that. Wow. And now I had, I had budgeted a 10% allowance for him. And so I said, well, let me think about that. And I'll get back to you. And I, we finally went a week later. I called him and said, okay, we'll give you the 5%. I had saved 5%, so I was ahead of the game. But, um, you know, there's all these things when you get into it. And back to your marketing question, true marketers will, you know, we, we, uh, we try not to use uh, artificial means to entice people because that's not a long-term strategy. If you can solve a problem, find the problem and find the solution and have the product, that's a long-term strategy. That's a better way to sell product. You may, you may get a bunch of men to buy that wrench because there's a beautiful woman on it, but you're probably going to offend as many men and particularly women when you do something like that. And, uh, hold that thought, hold that thought, hold that thought. Then why do we make a nine millimeter that's pink? They ran out of black. (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea, but uh, nine millimeters that's pink. pink Oh yeah. They're out there. They're out there. They're out there. I I don't think it's a big seller, but I think, I think it's more of a novelty more than anything else uh, for them to say that. I mean, if you look at a, a, if you go to a a gun store and you look at all the guns, how many guns are pink? Uh, Probably what? What? 1%. Yeah. It's a, it's a novelty. It's not, it's not designed to really, it's more to, they would, would, they just got free publicity. Man, Glock has a nine millimeter pink gun. Well, what all you remember is, yeah, it's a Glock and it's nine millimeter and it's pink, but they just got free publicity. You know, it's kind of like uh, when you do things kind of for the shock effect. Right. In, in society, we've, that seems to be something that sells. Uh, but if you're a true brand person, you go in for the long term to build a brand, to maintain that brand. You know, we, we lip therapy, you know, we were hoping maybe to get 8 million bucks. We've got a $3 million order on one. Wow. We ended up going up to about 35 million. 
And uh, my boss came in and he says, can you make it a $50 million brand? I said, I can, but the efficiencies of doing that will decrease our margins uh, because we're going to have to spend so much money to get to that extra 15 million. The sweet spot is right where we're at. So we got to be satisfied with that. And then let's go find another alternative use if we can for uh, petroleum jelly. Uh, You know, when I was in business school, we call that the point of diminishing returns, meaning that you can sell more product, but now your returns are being diminishing. So Bill, who was your loyal users? When you started looking at demographics, who was well, the Well, it's interesting. Women were the primary users, but we picked up a lot of men, a lot of men. Now, one of the things I did is once we, we did a regular, we did a, a like a Blistex, like a medicated, and then a sunblock. And, uh, and so we kind of ran those out. And so we're looking at another alternative use. And well, we, we had a lot of men, but I knew there was a men's market we didn't have. So we did some research and uh, we found out that men... Uh, love uh, wild cherry, something that tastes like a popsicle. Right. So I went to my boss and I said, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to do a flavor and it's going to be geared toward men. And he goes, wait a minute. The name is lip therapy. We're a therapeutic brand. That's a cosmetic product. And I said, trust me, this thing will work. And he says, I'll tell you what, I'll let you do it on a couple conditions. I said, okay, what's that? He says, you're not going to advertise it because I don't want to waste any money. I don't think it's going to sell. And two is you're going to have to do this within the budget that you currently have. You can't ask for more money. And wow. I said, okay, I'll do that. So I went up to our, our product development people. I took a cherry popsicle and I went into the lab and I said, I want it to smell and taste just like this. And they did. And we decided on the name. What are we going to call it? Cherry. So we found out, we did some research with men, the word wild cherry just drew drew it off the blocks. So we called it wild cherry lip therapy became our number one selling item in our line. (laughs) Wild cherry sound like some kind of thing that men talk about in the barbershop, Bill, wild cherry, that's the kind of stuff to get you in trouble. So that's the thing that when you think about it and you talked earlier about one's adolescence years and then coming on up, how do one even understand yourself, Bill? When did you start understanding who little Billy was compared to the adult in the room? Bill's becoming the adult because sooner or later, you wasn't there to see the American flag being raised and say it's time to eat. Yeah, that's a good question. That's a great question. You know, I think my scouting background helped me in a lot of this. But the thing that really kind of took off was I started out working in a factory at Avon Products. And uh, in Chicago, and then they moved me to Manhattan, worked at nine West 57th, doing the same thing. It was logistics and operations, manufacturing. And then uh, I switched and went to a company called Cheeseboro Ponds in Greenwich, Connecticut, worked in their international division. It's interesting. Uh Uh, I applied for a job at Cheeseboro and they sent me a letter saying, no, thank you. We're not interested. And then a month later, I got a call from a headhunter said, there's an opening at Cheeseboro Ponds. And I'm thinking, what the heck? I just got a letter saying no. So I said, yeah, I'll go on it. Well, it was their international division. So they hired me to do logistic services in Latin America, Africa, and the Far East as a young kid. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of stories on that. But when I was getting, when I was with HR, uh, I got the job. I filled everything out. And I said to the lady, I said, look, at, I, I got a question. I got a letter from you three months ago saying there is no openings or two months ago. And now here I am. She says, oh, that's the international division. 
we don't have anything to do with it. When you sent the letter in, we were talking domestic and uh, they were like two separate companies. So I, what, when I, when I started learning was at that international division, I traveled to 40 countries and got to see a lot of different things and started maturing. And uh, they asked me, they said, what do you want to do long-term? And I said, I'd like to be a general manager in one of your overseas facilities. And they said, well, give us 90 days and we'll see if that makes sense. And if it does, we'll have a career path for you. And they went and uh, they came back and I said, yep, we think that's a good career path. You've got finance, you've got operations, but you have no marketing. We're going to teach you marketing. So they put me in international marketing, which was not marketing. And then uh, about a year later, they said, we're going to send you over and become a product manager or a brand manager. And they had the Procter & Gamble method of teaching young people how to be a brand manager. So I went from an operation of about 26 people and big office and assistant to sitting in a cube by myself doing everything. Mm. I didn't cut my pay, which was good and bad. It was good because I didn't get a pay cut, but bad because I was making more than my boss's boss, (laughs) which caused some issues. And uh, my first brand was Q-tips. And uh, so I was the brand manager on Q-tips. There's a whole story on that. And then eventually moved me onto the skincare. And that's when it really took off. I really saw how I could impact a business, how I can reach a consumer, how I can build a business, build a brand, and uh, and be successful. And, uh, and the other thing that really helped is I started talking to our customers. Now, by, now, here's the thing. When you have a brand, you have a lot of customers. You have a consumer. That's one. You have a salesperson that's selling your product. That's another. You have your management team that's overseeing you. That's another customer. And then you have your retailer, which is another customer. So each one of those has a different set of lenses. And you can't get to the ultimate customer till you satisfy the lenses of all those other uh, people. And all the customers are the retailers, the end users retailer, salespeople, because I had to convince salespeople. One sales guy came up to me, goes, okay, let's see if I understand this. You want me to sell Vaseline petroleum jelly in a little tube? I said, yep. He said, there's 10 grams in this thing and you want to charge 99 cents or $1.39. I said, yep. And I can buy a whole jar for $1.79. He goes, I don't get it. And he's right. You know, if you look at it that way, that's exactly. I so I, I told him, I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll go with you on a sales call and let me help you. And then once you see the benefit of this product and how it fits a consumer need, uh, we'll, you'll come around. And sure enough, that's what happened. Um, he, he came around and he, he's the guy that got the $3 million order. Bill, you know, a convenience store is called convenient for a reason. One pays a lot more money for something in the convenience store than one would do. Uh, when I was growing up, it was something called um, the blue laws, meaning that stores would be closed on Sundays. Yep. And then after that, you couldn't do, get alcohol on Sundays. So convenience is a, is a cost associated with convenience. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Why do you think Sheets has a food store? Because... Yeah. People are going to go in there, and a lot of people think Sheets is a great food store to eat. Well, you know, you you had me thinking. I remember my experience was coming to playing sports. Uh, 
playing sports in a time when things were being integrated opened up a whole lot more avenues because a lot of times we look at race one way. However, we look at our favorite sports team through not a different set of lenses with race. However, we look at our players a certain way. Now, I came up through going through all white school to a certain degree and had a great basketball team. Majority of them are on the majority of players was black and graduated from that, went to college, um, just got treated differently, not as a poor black guy, as more as a black guy who played sports. And it's two different ways in America how one treats poor black kids. If you can play sports, your athlete is totally different. Yep. Now, now one, did you, did, you huh? get, did you get treated different when you weren't playing sports? When I won't playing sports, I was finishing college. Mm. So I was already the captain of the national. We won the national championship in, in, in college. So wow. I was the captain of the national basketball team, national championship team. So I had a certain sense of status. And I think it was even more important, Bill, after years of being um, acknowledged, back to you earlier question about acknowledgement, I've already built a sense of confidence, somewhat cockiness but more confident than cockiness. And I was so close to getting my degree. It took me five and a half years to get my business degree because when I finished my four years of eligibility, the way the class was running for me to graduate in business, I had to stay in school another year and a half. So I worked at UPS from 12 o'clock midnight till six in the morning. And then I went home, took a shower because UPS was paying $15 an hour. Then I took a shower and went to class. And I remember my first class on a Tuesday was a real estate class, Tuesday and Thursday. And I fell asleep in the class and the professor would come to me and Mr. Cleveland, um, you were making an A in this class and now you're falling asleep and you may not pass the class and you may not make an A, you may make a C. And I remember telling the professor, I said, sir, I'm working all night long. I'm doing the best I can to even come in this class. So if I go from an A to a C, that's okay also. And once I explained that to him, he kind of, not that he left me alone, but he understood. Back to your original point, once people understand what we're going through, that's the main thing. And my driving force, Bill, was this. I didn't want to go back home poor, and I didn't want to go back home and disappoint my mother. So it's interesting. I had a poem on my wall at, at, in my apartment, and I still have this poem in my office today. And it's right in front of me. Now I'm going to read it from me. It's a poem from Langston Hughes called Mother to Son. And the poem is written like this. Well, son, I'll tell you. Life for me ain't been no crystal stairs. It had tacks in it and splinters and boards torn up and places with no carpet on the floor bare. But all the time, I's been a climbing on and reaching landings, turning corners, and something going in the dark, where there ain't been no light. So boy, don't you turn back. Don't you sit down on the steps, because you find it kind of hard. Don't you fall now, for I still going, honey. I still climbing, and life for me ain't been no crystal stairs. Now, that's something that I don't know. I think I got that poem in Black literature class while I was in school, but I took it and I cut it out and put it on my wall, Bill. And that's been my mantra is that 
if my mother could do all the things she's been able to do being disabled, I cannot give up and go back home and say, it's too hard, mommy, it's too hard. So I figured I could not go back home and disappoint my, my mother and then the other siblings, because I had another younger brother and a younger sister at home, is like, well, he went to college, but he didn't graduate. Our house didn't have any room for failure at that time because failure would really snowball into more failures, if that made sense. Absolutely. And, you know, we're going to end on this note. Odell, I love you. Keep climbing those stairs, and I will climb with you. All right, my friend. Thank you. Find Bill and Odell online at thecommonground.show. This podcast is a production of BG Ad Group. Darren Sutherland, executive producer. Jeremy Powell, creative director. Jacob Sutherland, director. All rights reserved. This podcast is brought to you by Yes Weekly, the triad's largest circulated and best read weekly magazine. You can also find us online at yesweekly.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yes Weekly, your trusted news leader for local arts, entertainment, music, food, and more for nearly 18 years. Whether you're a big, medium, or small business, managing and growing the bottom line is important. Focus CFO brings the experience and financial acumen of a Fortune 100 Chief Financial Officer to your company at a fraction of the cost. PNL help, internal reporting processes, or any business transitions or events, Focus CFO will help you and your team have a CFO in your company's back pocket. Focus CFO. Learn more at focuscfo.com.